Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We got Brian with us today. And what's going on? Ran over my tagline there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know. Hey, we're still getting used to this whole like doing it from a distance thing. So, uh, but you guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course challenge the status quo, which always needs challenging because, uh, yeah, there's a lot of instantiated things over church history and lots of confusion and status quos need to be challenged. But first, like, subscribe, do all that good stuff. Uh, you already know how the internet works and join us on Patreon if you'd like to support what we're doing here. But today we have none other than Dr. Jonathan Williams, the author of the new book, Romans 9 and the story Paul was telling. Uh, this book just came out. Uh, he gifted us a copy of his book. We, mighty thanks for that. I am very looking forward to reading it. Um, and after going through a little bit of uh, a little bit of what the book is and uh, doing some research on it, I actually think he's onto something. I think he's actually correct on this issue. So with that being said, we have Dr. Williams here. So Dr. Williams or John, Jonathan, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's really Really good uh, to be with you, and uh, I really enjoyed the uh, music during the countdown. So, uh, thanks very much. That was very enjoyable. <laughs> I'm motivated now. <laughs> See, that's why we did. So, we used to do the all our recordings at like ten or eleven o'clock at night, and uh, so you, we needed something to kind of get our uh, get our yeah, get our brain so. kicking right, a little bit. Sounds like that would work well. Theology show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, real quick, I do want to answer. Uh, there's somebody here who uh, is a fan of your work. She said her name's Candy. She said, never heard of this channel before. I'm here for the author being interviewed. What does this channel normally focus on exactly? And because uh, she's curious about our name. And yes, you are on you are on to that, Candy. Just so you know, we focus on issues that can divide churches. We focus on uh, issues that um, shouldn't divide churches churches, but sadly do. Uh, we deal with a lot of like divisive topics and then we call things out when we feel like we absolutely have to. But bottom line is that's the whole point. It's supposed to be ironic. That's why the tagline is actually uniting a divided body. So the whole point is that even though churches split, we don't want them to. So just so you're aware, this is not like an atheist channel where we want to destroy the church. Sometimes people get confused by that. But uh, we've had that accusation before. <laughs> yeah. Things that you didn't think of when you came up with when you came up with your clever name, things you didn't expect people to come up with against you. So anyway, uh, so Jonathan, uh, you just wrote this book and I would love to talk to you about this, but first, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background is, um, and just tell a little bit so that way everyone knows kind of who you are and why you chose to write this? Yeah. Okay. Well, I pastored for 35 years. Uh, I, I, as I see the expression on your face, you're saying, wow, which must mean that I don't look old enough to have pastored for 35 years, but I, I'm not going to go there. So you, you look, you look no older than 32, man. You're doing great. Now, now, now we're really good friends. So, so uh, yeah, I did pastor for 35 years in 2012. My wife and I launched our ministry called WGS Ministries, which is a teaching and storytelling ministry. It primarily began as a teaching ministry uh, to touch people around the world, but it developed into storytelling. If I could take just a minute to explain that, I, I created a program called Stories of the Master, where I retold the life of Christ, uh, bringing in cultural and historical details. And these are the details that make the stories come alive. And so that turned out to be an 80-episode 
uh, series on the life of Christ from his birth all the way to his enthronement. And if anybody's interested in hearing those, it's storiesofthemaster.com. And so as I developed those, I wanted to uh, let the Christian world know about it. I started going to conferences uh, hosted by the International Orality Network. Uh, this network is a network of uh, now thousands of organizations that are utilizing oral methods to reach the world with the gospel. And the reason for that is that of the world's 8 billion people, uh, a good uh, 5 billion of those at least either uh, must learn or prefer to learn through oral methods. They, they prefer hearing stories rather than hearing sermons. And it's not just a matter of preference, but they connect better to stories than they do to Western style sermons. And so the Holy Spirit has been working powerfully uh, through that. And so I, um, as I started going to those conferences, I learned about the wider, wider world of storytelling and that enabled me to connect with uh, people from different countries. And so I currently work with two pastors in Pakistan and two in India, and I train them in storytelling so that they go through the whole Bible uh, through stories in a very simplified way. And we are seeing hundreds of people come to Christ and uh, house churches started. It's been it's been really really a wonderful thing. So so storytelling has uh, really become an important part of my life and my ministry. Now, as it relates to this book, um, my motivation for writing it uh, was um, during my uh, PhD studies. I I earned my PhD through Trinity Seminary in Indiana. And um, before I wrote my dissertation, I decided uh, I was required to write four papers of five to six thousand words on a theological topic. So I chose Romans nine and I decided to interact with John Piper's book, The Justification of God, which is his exegesis of Romans chapter nine. And I chose Piper's book because it's really just about the only Calvinist commentary out there that seriously attempts to exegete it uh, from a Calvinist perspective, except for commentaries on the whole book of Romans. And so, um, so I read through his book and I wrote these four papers uh, on verses one through five, verses six through 13, verses 14 through 18, and verses 19 through the rest of the chapter. And I interacted with Piper's book, and I show how I believe Piper is wrong, and Calvinism is wrong on their approach to Romans 9. So having finished my uh, PhD thesis, uh, I decided that I needed to put all this into a book form. Thus, I have the book, uh, Romans 9, and the story Paul was telling. That's how I can that's fascinating. It's actually funny because uh, I got my degree from Trinity as well, and I'm actually in Evansville, Indiana, where Trinity is at. Uh, Brian visited us last week, and we had uh, we had coffee with Jonathan and Braxton here. Actually, I'm a pastor at Braxton and Jonathan's church. So, really? uh, yeah, so <laughs> I'm their student director and missions director here. So it's funny, right when you said Trinity, it's like, oh yeah, my yeah, people. I took uh, many <laughs> courses from Jonathan Pritchett and. Uh, trying to, to reach out to them to see if they want to promote the book also. But I was really blessed. And Dr. Flowers, Leighton Flowers, was the chair of my dissertation committee. So uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, I'll I'll go harass them for you a little bit. So, uh, but I don't know <laughs> him well enough to first. harass them, but that's coming. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You you got on Layton's show. You got on our show, Trinity Radio. They're a bunch of losers anyway. So uh, I, <laughs> I just think it's ironical that the guy who's attacking Tulip has a last name of Flowers. I I, I just <laughs> that is ironic in that. So how did I never put that together? There is some irony there. <laughs> The first time Will you showed me a, a Leighton Flowers link, I thought it was a joke name because that was his name. It was about something about Tulip. I was like, is this his real name? Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. So, um, but yeah, so that's really interesting, especially like I, one of the things that kind of stuck out to me, first off, being a pastor for 35 years, uh, that is awesome. Um, it is pastoral work is not easy. Uh, a lot of people get this idea that we only work one day a week. And uh, so yeah. I appreciate your service there and your ministry. You. Appreciate that. Um, but the other thing is, is that the idea of storytelling, I find to be fascinating. Uh, we were talking about this. Um, so this last summer, I read through the uh, trilogy, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy again, haven't read through it in ages. And it was one of those things where I now as an adult who has studied theology, I started realizing as I read through it, how much uh, Tolkien's like theology was actually in the storytelling. And you could really tell when you read it. And one of the things I was, I was talking to some people in ministry about, which was like, you know, it's amazing to me that I feel like the reason why people, when you pre produce them a theology book, they want to fall asleep versus if you hand them a 1200 page fictional story is because yeah. the story has a hook and it catches people because you can pick up on themes and these things throughout. And that actually hits you more where you live. Yeah. So I think it's really fascinating that that's actually becoming a very powerful method across the world to give the gospel to yeah. other people. Yes, so. and that's been going on for about, I think, since the early 80s. So that makes it 40-something uh, years now that there's been this tremendous move of the Holy Spirit in this way. And there are there are there's story after story after story of uh, people like, say, for example, uh, from India. I, I know one story where a guy got saved back in the 1990s, and he went to a Western seminary, learned the Word of God, which is very good. And then he went back to his village and started preaching sermons. Hardly anything happened. A few years later, he learned about a conference that talked about storytelling, and he went, and he adopted their methods. And within a few years, he had over a 1,000 people come to Christ. The word was spreading like wildfire. And our brains are wired that way. We are connected uh, best to stories, not to minimize content and good theology and sound theology. Of course, we want that. But but God made us to, to hear stories, to learn stories, and to love stories. And the word of God is 80% narrative. We forget that. I mean, this is where we get our doctrine. This is where we get our truth. But uh, primarily, the, this is not a book of systematic theology. Although systematic theology arises from it, this is a story. And that's what we do when we train these people. And so we have people in India, Pakistan, some of the poorest of the poor who are learning the entire narrative of Scripture, and they're able to pass it on to others. We even have widows who are sharing Christ now. We have blind people who are leading house churches we have one guy who has only one leg and gets around on a cane. He doesn't have a wheelchair or even crutches. He just get, gets around on a, on a large stick. 
He leads uh, a house church. They're on fire for Christ. We have equipped them with the ability to tell the story. And, and what we do is we, is we say that the Bible is one story in six parts. And then we give them 20, let's see if I can get it right here, 20 stories <laughs> that explain the six parts of the one story. And that's just so easy to grasp. And that's what we train people in. You're muted, Will. I just realized that. Sorry. As when I'm typing to people in the live stream, I realize you can hear my my yeah, fingers clicking. Clack keyboard. So I do have a clickety clack keyboard, but it sound it makes it sound like I'm doing something important. Uh, anyway, so uh, well, and that's and that's kind of like and we just had uh, also at our church we had a the confidence conference. We had different testimonials, and we all uh, some of us shared our own stories, and it was funny how it was like even though we had all the, you know, we had a keynote speaker, Braxton spoke on the evidences for the resurrection, all these things. But once people told their stories, that's when it started hitting people even where they live. So yeah. even though in the West here, we are very big, you know, hey, be systematic and all these things, but people do actually resonate better with story. Yeah. Uh, it, that is that that can't be yeah that can't be denied because even I find myself that way right like I I'm a big nerd if anyone sees anything behind me here I have a lot of Star Wars Legos and stuff and it's like <laughs> I like the idea of of the story and I know it's a classic hero narrative but that's part of the story anyway so yeah. um but so you wrote this and you thought and I think it's interesting that you even like you put it's nice to have somebody push back on some people like Sprawl or Piper and realize like I think they're wrong and uh, because these are some very popular theologians and talking heads that that uh, honestly there's not always a lot of stuff and we're told all the time too that um I, I'd like to get your feedback on this but I get I hear regularly too that people who are non-Calvinists like ourselves um don't actually deal with Romans 9 at all like I hear that regularly well I'm terrified of it <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they say that we like they always say we're Arminians, even though I'm not an Arminian. But they, right. they yeah, yeah. But if you're not a Calvinist, you're an Arminian in the in the mind, right? <laughs> so some, uh, if you're a part of the online discourse, it happens all the time. But it's like people actually say that, like, well, you non-Calvinists avoid Romans nine. You're scared of it. Yeah. And uh, so, do you, have you ever been accused of that before? It's going to be hard to be told that now that you wrote a book on it. Uh, it would be hard to to tell me that. No, I haven't received that a whole lot from, from people in my interactions with, with Calvinists. Not, it hasn't been there a whole lot. So I've not had to defend myself in that way. Right. Fair enough. Um, now, is your intended audience of the book? Are you, are you writing to those that would be Piper fans or those that would agree with his exegesis? Or are you looking to speak to non-Calvinists or is it broader than that? I am speaking to anyone who would be willing to read my book. I, I, I really, I really don't. I, I didn't write it for Calvinists. I didn't write it for non-Calvinists either. My real burden in writing it was to say, this is what Paul was talking about. My and, and I think what would help people understand the motivation behind that is that my core gift that God has given me is teaching. Uh, so those years I was pastoring, I was primarily a pastor teacher in those years and, and going systematically through scripture uh, for many of those years. And so I want to teach the word of God accurately. And I know that um, uh, Romans 9 is a contentious chapter, but I think also it goes back to my own story 
I, I was raised in a Christian family and uh, I was, I'm from San Antonio, Texas. So born and raised here. And my uh, parents uh, went to little independent fundamentalist Baptist churches. And I'm grateful for that. They, they led me to Christ when I was five years old. And, and we went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's what you did back then. And so, um, but then when I was 14, my parents did the greatest thing for me after leading me to Christ. And that is, they pulled me out of public school and they put me in a little private Christian high school. And that's where I really went deeper into the word of God. Now, the headmaster and the pastor of, of that church was a Calvinist and he was going through the book of Romans. And we had never heard anything like this at all. And so we put up some resistance to it, but eventually we took it in and I became a Calvinist at the age of maybe 16 years old. And although I will say I never swallowed limited atonement. I thought that's just semantics. That's just word games uh, that everybody's playing. It's just very clear in, in some fashion, at least Christ died for all. It's just there in black and white. And so I was a, a four point Calvinist and I was uh, very fervent in my Calvinism and I would argue for it vociferously. And I enjoyed uh, arguing people into a corner and proving them wrong and proving that I was right. In fact, one of the persons listening to me tonight, uh, she's already popped up here, Candy Robbins. She was a high school classmate of mine and she never agreed with Calvinism and we would go back and forth. And, uh, and so here I am all these years later, Candy, and I agree with you now. Please forgive me, Candy, for all that I did wrong back then. <laughs> so. She can drop in the I told you so comment here if she wants to. <laughs> yeah. uh, Candy, if you put in here, I told you so, I will make sure it gets highlighted. Uh <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Uh, so so let awesome. me just say one other thing. So so I, I was around the age 16, I bought into Calvinism and I held onto it fervently, but I also uh kept uh studying the word of God. I, I was preparing to go to Bible school and, and I went to Bible school in Kansas City. And as, as I read scripture and um, as, as I, I learned more of the overarching narrative of scripture, that just I, I really love studying that way of seeing how everything connected. So rather than just pull up a doctrine out here and a doctrine out there, I thought, how does it all fit together? And one day as I studied every verse in scripture that used the word choose or chose or chosen or elect, I discovered that election was about God's choice of Abraham. So for the sake of all the nations, the elect were chosen for the sake of the non-elect. And I thought, hmm, Calvinism doesn't really fit. It's fitting a square peg into a round hole. It doesn't really fit the narrative of scripture. And I was about 22 years of age at that time. And I thought, I, and I abandoned unconditional election and irresistible grace at that time. And so I was 22 at that time. And I just kept studying and talking to people here and there. And then recently in the past few years, I put it all together in this book. Wow. Fascinating. I can't remember what the original question was that you asked me. I hope my, my, oh, no, you, match. So you're I, doing I, great. So that was great. So yeah, and that, I think that comes up a lot too. I think with, with several people that we've talked to that are, are, talking about Romans nine, especially not in the Calvinistic lens, it seems like 
almost universally they come from some background in Calvinism. My background's in Calvinism too. Yeah, I got a book on my back shelf of my grandpa translating all of John Calvin's works. Um, yeah. Wow! So that's it ingrained in my family. So I can understand that as well. And it's kind of interesting when you, like you said, you start examining those verses about choice and about will and about election and uh it starts falling into place that maybe that yeah. isn't the right lens to be looking at scripture yeah yeah it's actually funny i was thinking because you had an independent fundamental baptist background and so do i and uh brian you said it was with the Cal you like you went to calvinism brian was raised i mean he went to uh kelvin reformed church he went to kelvin university uh so it, yeah there's it's funny there we have some we have some connections together here so uh, yeah. uh and then so the thing is is uh when you're talking about what, what storytelling methods right and the narrative and i thought it was really interesting we we're talking about elect you, you you went back and you mentioned it about abraham and that's kind of what i pointed out before because when you read the romans it paul go he refers to this thing of just the promise and he just kind of references the promise well what's the promise everyone because we're westerners we're obsessed with soteriology the doctrine of salvation we just go the promise must mean to save us and it's really, he, Paul really is getting at the promise made to Abraham <laughs> that yeah. uh, all, all nations will be blessed, right? That's and right. so uh, it is, it's funny because when uh, I taught the Romans 9 a couple years ago at my church, I was like, all right, before we can read Romans 9, let's go to Romans chapter 8. And everyone thought I was going to do the complete foreknow, those he foreknew, he like, predestined. And, right. And I'm like, there's that, sure. But let's talk about promise here for a minute. What is he referring mm -hmm. to? Because once you have that background in the in the story, if you will, yeah. the rest starts kind of flowing through it really well. So um, yeah. Anyway, that that's that's fascinating. Um, now you, you know. Let me let me say one other yeah. thing here about the storytelling thing is that that's why I chose this title for my book, Romans Nine, and the story Paul was telling. So Paul was using a a storytelling method that was common among the Jewish people. And I, I reference this in my book. I forget exactly which page, what page it's on, um, but people have to read the book and uh, find out where it is. But, but the Jewish people were uh, into their history and they were into their story. And each generation had to connect their generation to the story that went back to Abraham and then even further back to creation. And so they were constantly updating their story. And that was a, they used many different methods to make their story current to the people that they were ministering to. And that's what Paul was doing. We, we see that in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is the story of Israel from the perspective of faith. Acts chapter 7 is the story of Israel from the perspective of, of uh, the people rejecting their leaders, culminating in the rejection of the Messiah. So that's how they proved themselves, and that's how they proved their doctrine. Now, let's see what Kenny's saying. Oh, you're right, Kenny. You're so right. Yeah. Yeah. For those listening on audio, she, uh, Kenny says the overarching narrative of Scripture, understanding that is key to interpreting Paul. Scripture is so cohesive. Yeah. And uh, that's actually one of the reasons why I've appreciated the work of N.T. Wright a lot as well. Um, yeah. And a lot of people like him where it's like, all right, well, what, where's this out of the story? Like, and, and the more I've, I've actually was saying the other day, 
um, that systematic theology, though, is a useful tool in many ways. Yeah. Uh, we have it has almost become the new obsession where we systematize everything, and we, we as as opposed to uh, taking it within the context first. Like I, I have always told people, like if you take one verse from Revelation and you build your entire doctrine off that one weird verse in Revelation or that one weird verse in Psalms, you're yeah. probably not on solid footing because those are certain books with a very different writing style of poetry or apocalyptic it, it becomes right. it's you don't want to start pulling systematic theology from those in particular now granted your systematic theology can be part of that sure but that shouldn't be where you have your foundation by any stretch of the imagination yeah. so anyway sorry i that's a tangent there but yeah. uh, I, really you're good. As you were saying, though, Paul is actually using a very common storytelling method, especially for a first century Jew. And so I think sometimes people miss the idea that uh, he was a Pharisee um, right. who was who had a Roman citizenship. So it probably means that, yes, he, he, he was from a very well-educated background and probably yeah. from a well-privileged background. So he's going to use a lot of these things, and we read them as like Westerners. So we read it very linearly. Right. Uh, and I think sometimes that uh, that gets in the way. Yeah. Um, now, so, and I think it's also really smart that you took your dissertation and your, all those parts, uh, and you turned it into a book. That's super smart. Um, I, looking back in hindsight, I should have waited to write my like 90,000 pages, uh, 90,000 words that I have right now, uh, for my dissertation and just published it. But we live and learn, but <laughs> yeah, we sure do. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I was about to redo it all. It's fine. Um, so anyway, so what are some, when it comes to Romans, what are some of the big Romans chapter nine? What do you think are some of the biggest hangups that, or mistakes that people make when they approach Romans chapter nine? We've already addressed the proper way is probably at least understanding narrative structure, but what are some of the things that you think people get wrong? Well, great, great question. <laughs> Where does one begin? So, well, let, let me just go back a, one more time to the storytelling part. Uh, I think one of the things that people do not get correct is that they don't understand the sequence that Paul is introducing there. After he goes through the introduction in the first five verses, and then after he gives his thesis statement, in verse six, uh, then he goes into the patriarchal period. That's verses seven through 13. He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then from there, he goes into the Exodus, verses 14 through 18, and Moses and Pharaoh. And then from there, he talks about the prophets. So that you have, the, you have the, uh, the patriarchs, you have the Exodus event, and then you have the prophets. And so Paul is surveying history. So that's one thing that people do not recognize. They just, they pull... Uh, little bits and pieces out and uh, phrases out that, that sound really Calvinistic, but they're taken out of context. Another mistake that people make <clears throat> is that they uh, do not understand the role of verse six, where Paul says, uh, what does Paul say here? <laughs> chapter. I just wrote a book on it and it slips my mind. Maybe it's because I'm live. I don't know what it is here. Here we, here we go. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And so Romans 6 is Paul's thesis statement. And everything he says after verse 6, verses 7, actually through chapter 11 and verse 36, is his explanation of why the word of God has not failed. 
And, and, and so when Paul talks about the word of God, he's talking about the promises of God, which Will, you referenced earlier. And so Paul is dealing with an issue that he faced repeatedly in his ministry, which actually leads to another, another problem, that uh, mistake that people make when they approach Romans 9. People approach Romans 9 as if Paul were in a library writing a doctoral dissertation, and he was not. Paul was dealing with uh, issues that came up in his ministry repeatedly as he went from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. And, and, and the, the issue that he was dealing with was that, how can you say that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated? How can you say that the Messiah is here? Because when the kingdom comes, when the Messiah comes, Israel will be saved. And as we look around, Israel is not saved. Therefore, the promises of God have not been fulfilled. Or So your theology, Paul, is advocating something that God has failed with Israel. And so Paul is dealing with people who that he argued with frequently. And so he says in verse 6, it is not, the word of God has not failed. The promises of God have been fulfilled. And here is how God fulfilled his promises. And then he goes back into the history of his people. And he says, let's look at how God has worked throughout our history to fulfill his purposes. And he begins with the story that God did not advance his purposes of the salvation for the world, for the salvation of the whole world, he did not advance his purposes through all of his people, through all of Abraham. Let me back up. He did not advance his covenant purposes through all of Abraham's descendants. So we look at Isaac and we look at Ishmael. God's purpose for the nations advanced through Isaac, not Ishmael. And they advanced through Jacob, not Esau. And so Paul is going to show how God worked in the past. And then Paul brings it to this conclusion. The way God worked then is the way God is working now in the times in which we live. He's using the same pattern. And so, yes, it's true. Not everybody believes, but God is working through a remnant. And that remnant is based upon faith in the crucified and risen Messiah. That is that is fantastic. And that, that was so well put, like to condense in that beginning part there, because that is something that uh me and my friend uh, our friend jordan uh we talk about regularly a lot of people their first go-to thing with jacob and esau is like well it's nation states he's probably just talking about the nation states right edom and uh israel right. and i'm like yeah there's like there is a nation state issue there edom is you know they turn they betrayed their brother and yeah you can make that parallel but it's it, and it, most people do that though to avoid the idea that was well, can't be talking about individuals Right. That, that's what the people are afraid of, that they're like, it can't be referring to yeah, individuals. Right. And I'm like, no, he is referring to individuals. Correct. He's talking about the messianic line. He's Correct. talking about how God works through Israel. Yes. He's uh, and how he has always done that. And uh, and that's why, like you mentioned, some of the other patriarchs before. So it's like, no, he's talking about it. He's still talking about individuals. But just because it's talking about individuals does not mean you grant Calvinism. Right. Uh, so, it, and some people get that a little mixed up there. So that, like I said, I was so stoked when I, I was pumped when I was reading and just listening to a little bit of what you said with flowers. I'm like, 
finally someone i think who gets yeah. it like or at least i think you get it because you agree with me and I, I think anyone <laughs> <course>. who agrees <laughs> anyone yeah, who agrees with I me is published, awesome. I, I checked out your uh, you know the church split youtube just to make sure i was in line with you will so yeah <laughs> i knew it i'm like i'm like the pope but for you know protestants really uh, i'm just yeah. kidding <laughs> yeah, edit it out later <laughs> uh that's not going to get edited out. We're going to keep that. Um, that was going to cut that, and they're going to control you with the waiter. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, it was just funny. I was just like, it was so interesting because I haven't seen, I haven't at least so far read somebody that like took such like that noticed that. Like a lot of them go the nation state route, and I just thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, it's about both. And and one of the things I say in my book in regard to that is that when. Uh, when we go back to Genesis and when we look at the oracles that God gave to Rebecca and that God gave to Jacob and Esau through Isaac, God was speaking to individuals, but he was speaking to nations at the same time because there was this interaction between the individual and the community, between the, between the individual and the corporate reality. And it just went back and forth and back and forth. And so, yes, Romans 9 is about individuals. And about the nations too. It's about both. That's very important. So it looks like you have one fan there, Pontiff Will Hess. Yeah. Very, very well. I got to take my wins where I can. If you if you know if you know how people feel about me, it's like either I'm loved or hated, and mostly hated. Most people uh, first came to the split. And started listening to us because I did individual episodes before Brian. He was just a producer. So it's really this whole culture is really we came for Will, but we stayed for Brian. So it's so I have to, I, I have to, yeah, he, he really is the kingpin here. I just, anyway. Uh, yeah, you got to take it. You got to take it. You got to take the wins. Got to take the wins. Um, that's right. So that's a really that's really fascinating. Like I think you were you're right though. Verse six is really sets up the entire thing for Romans chapter nine. Yeah. And one and if you misunderstand what is who he's talking who his target audience is there, and what he's really trying to drive at, I mean it can be confusing because um, he does write still like a Pharisee would, right? Like a trained Jewish yeah. the, theologian, and. Yeah. That can be very foreign to us, and I don't think a lot of us understand that. And that uh, that's something I didn't understand. I remember I was not, I never got became a Calvinist, but I remember I'd go to Romans chapter nine, and I was raised like a Ryrie dispensationalist. Mm -hmm. So I just read it as like, like, well, he's just talking to Israel, and it's just Israel. And I, that was my, but I never was satisfied with that answer yeah. in my early twenties, and you know now over the many years of study, and I've kind of come to a new understanding. So that's really good. Um, so then as far as uh, when it comes to, so that's what a lot of people get like get wrong um, is that area of it. Now, what is the biggest uh, way that you think that this book can really help somebody as far as like, the, I know you wrote it because you already wrote some of the stuff for your school. So you're like, hey, I might as well publish it. But how do you think that this is gonna be the most beneficial for somebody um, in, in their ministry or in their lives? Yeah, a couple things come to mind. One is, understand the narrative. I, I just think that is crucial. Somebody on the uh, on the Facebook group, uh, Soteriology 101, somebody asked me the question, Jonathan, what are what are the main resources that you have used in your book, you know, that, that really helped this? And um, I, I mentioned one that was written back in the 1970s called God's Strategy in Human History. That was very good by Forster and Martin that explained about hardening and what was going on in the plagues back in Exodus. That was good. But the two books that I really emphasize have nothing to do with the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Uh, nothing to do with it whatsoever. 
uh, and they're uh, two of N.T. Wright's first books. They were uh, the New Testament and the people of God and Jesus and the victory of God. And the reason I uh, emphasize those two books is that they give the background to the narrative. And so you get this, this historical context of what was going on. And so I, I just think that that is so important to understand this historical narrative. And so I would just encourage people to, to do this. And uh, now those books are massive. They're like five to 600 pages each. The first 100 pages are almost incomprehensible. They're so difficult. They're more philosophical. But once you get deeper into, they're just fascinating. I, I will give a little plug for my book that if you do get the book and if you read it, you will understand the historical narrative. And I believe it is so important that all of us as members of the body of Christ make a determination that we are going to be the best storytellers possible because we have the greatest story in the world. I wrote a, a, another book several years ago called Changing the Stories of the World. And what it is, it's an examination of the gospel. And I, I approach the gospel from three perspectives. The uh, scripture talks about the gospel of God. It talks about the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I show how these three concepts are really, it's not talking about three gospels. It's, it's looking at the one gospel from three perspectives. And that we are living in a world that is telling stories. There is... Um, there's an Islamic story, there's a Hindu story, there's a Mormon story. There are these massive cosmic worldview stories that are capturing the hearts and the minds of millions of people. And so if we are going to win this battle in the world and reach the world for Christ, we have to go up against these stories with something more than three bullet points. God loves you, you're a sinner, pray this prayer and you'll go to heaven when you die. You know, that that's Although that's true, <laughs> that's we have to tell the story and we have the true story and the best story in the world. It's even better than Lord of the Rings, which is saying a lot. <laughs> well, you mentioned about reading it uh, recently uh, for the first time in years. I, I read it six times. So uh, I love it. I read the Cimmerillion three times. So uh, oh, wow. I, I'm, a, I'm a Lord of the, the Rings fan. And, and but but we're captivated by this idea of story. So we really have to approach the word of God and, and recapture this story aspect. So that's, um, that's one thing I really try to emphasize. And so particularly in the book, I kept going back to the promise that God made to Abraham and that this is the narrative of scripture and the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. That's a big one I would advocate. A second one, that I would mention, and, and this is the one that is so exciting to me, is about the nature of God. Um, Calvinists and, and John Piper make a big deal out of God's statement, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the, the way that they make a big deal out of that is to say, look, you see, God God can have mercy upon whomever he chooses to have mercy. And, and if he wants to condemn people to hell, he can condemn people to hell. God is so glorious. He has every right to do that. And they have completely missed the point because yep. 
when God said that to Moses, he, he, he said, I'm going to show you who I am. And he did that the next day, not that day where he said he was going to show his glory. But the next day he said he would show his glory to Moses. And when he shows his glory to Moses, we read it in Exodus 34. It says, then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and covenant faithfulness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And then he goes on and talks about his justice. But for every statement about the justice of God, we have six statements about God's mercy and compassion. And so in this book, what I share with people is that the nature of the emphasis of scripture is not that God is independent of everything human, that he wants to be sovereign and independent and make his choices as he wishes that I choose you to go to heaven, I choose you to go to hell. That's not the emphasis. God reveals himself as a relational God, as a covenant God. And this is massive. And the Calvinist perspective is actually closer to the pagan view of the gods in antiquity than it is to the biblical view of God. And as I begin to put this together in some of my readings in John Walton's books about uh, the Old Testament and about Israel and how uh, ancient people understood the gods and how the gods were sovereign and you, you had to discover what their will was and and they, they could do whatever they wanted to do. And you always lived in fear of the sovereign gods uh, who created mankind to, to be their slaves and to do whatever they wanted. I thought that Calvinism, that sounds like Calvinism. That does exactly. <laughs> and, yep. and, and that's not the way God reveals himself in scripture. And um, so I, I would encourage people uh, if they choose to get the book and to read it, to look for uh parts where you will learn about the nature of God's love and his love for the whole world better than you ever have before. I had one reader uh, write me a note on, uh, on a Facebook page, and she said, as I read this, I was weeping, Jonathan, because I saw the way God is. It's not this Calvinist God who must condemn people to hell for the glory of his name, but I see a God who loves people. And uh, anyway, she went on and on. It really blessed my heart. And I believe it will bless readers too. That's awesome. I just got done reading a book by Oliver Crisp, who's a Calvinist um, on the uh, atonement and a participation. It's actually a re really good book until he gets to his predestination nonsense in the end. Um, and I disagree with him on a number of issues, but I like, I really enjoyed his approach. You, you know what I mean? Where you could like read somebody go, I disagree with you, but I actually really like what you're doing. Like, yeah, 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 you, sure. You know, you're really interacting well with the content. Um, but one of the things uh, that um, that struck out to me too is like so many of these areas that he was talking about. I'm like, man, there's so many like this pagan like in like depth to it. Like that there is a, that sometimes we don't even realize that we let these pagan ideals 
come into our Christianity and we don't even, we, some of us are, are, aren't even aware of it. It's probably because we're so far removed from like the ancient Gnostic heresies and stuff that we're, we, we, we're, we don't notice that when some of those influences might come in. Right. Um, but I did get a question um, from a friend of mine. Uh, he asked, he want, he asked a good question because we were talking about um, some of the things that, people might miss. So he was wondering if the uh, one of the problems that Paul was dealing with, dealing with and what he kept running into in his ministry was if the Gentiles were in the new covenant, if the Gentiles were in the new covenant at all, like in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. Do you think one of the issues that he was having to address, which is why he wrote this, was that the Gentiles were even included? Uh, or do you oh, think yeah. he was trying to drive at something else? Oh, oh, oh yes, that, that was part of it. In fact, that's one of the reasons why Paul wrote the book of Romans. That was the... Uh, that was part of the occasion for writing it because he's trying to get the Gentile Christians to have a, a better concept and uh, a better understanding of how they should relate to the Jewish people, the, the covenant the people of God, uh, which, which brings up a very important point. In the first century, no one was talking about, quote, Calvinism or, quote, Arminianism. No one, that was not the topic of conversation. The key issue in the first century was incorporating Gentiles into the body of the Messiah without them having to become Jewish people. That was the issue. And that was the message that Paul was taking synagogue to synagogue, which is what got him into so much trouble. Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to be full members of the body that the Messiah has created. So, so I, I say it in my book, Paul, he, he got uh, he got thirty nine lashes five times. He did not get thirty nine lashes because he was a Calvinist preaching in Armenian synagogues. <laughs> he got thirty nine lashes. Because he was saying that the Messiah has come, who was crucified by the Romans, but he rose again from the dead. And that still wouldn't have caused too much trouble among the people. And now God's people, Israel, by faith in the crucified, risen Messiah, can have the completion of their story. And Gentiles can come in and join with us fully in the worship of, of God the Father and the Messiah Jesus. And they don't have to be circumcised. And of course, if you've had that tradition that Gentiles had to be circumcised, if you've had that for centuries, well, you know, you don't just change your mind overnight like that. It takes time. And that's why Paul had such a hard time, why he suffered so much at the hands of his Jewish brethren. So anyway, that was the issue in the first century. And that's what Ephesians 3 is about. So, yeah. So would you say that because of that aspect of it, what really is saying, to make sure this sounds right, um, so when it says that God can have mercy on whom he has mercy, it's really that God can have mercy on the Gentiles. Uh, he can. Yes. That is the point Paul is making when he says that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, is that God can, if he wants to, bring in the Gentiles without having to fulfill all these, like, 613 Levitical commandments or whatever. I would not disagree with that, but I would say that um, what Paul was talking about there is that in the outworking of his covenant plan for the nations, that God used, God was free to use a 
<clears throat> excuse me, to use the method of having mercy upon sinners, some sinners, Israel, at the golden calf. Uh, he could have destroyed them uh, as he talked to Moses about, but God sovereignly chose to have mercy upon those sinners to advance the purpose for the world. And God sovereignly chose to harden Pharaoh, another sinner, so that his name would be magnified to the nations of the world so they could see that he was the true God. And so what he's talking about there is how, what methods does God use to advance his covenant program for the nations of the world? And so uh, going back to the patriarchal period, first he used the method of faith in the promise. That was Abraham. There's nothing about election in the story of Abraham. He cultivated faith in Abraham. He used election with Jacob. He chose the younger and the weaker of the two brothers as a paradigm. And there's just a lot of good preaching stuff there that he chose the younger, weaker, the guy who had trouble, uh, the, the guy who had trouble uh, taking care of his family, who had a dysfunctional family. You know, so here's Esau leading 400 men who are who have weapons. And here's Jacob limping along with four wives and a bunch of kids and a bunch of sheep. So who is more likely to be the leader and to be the one who's going to advance the plan of God? Well, it's Esau, right? No, that's the way of the world. And so he chooses Jacob, the younger and the weaker of the two. So that's a method that God uses, faith, election of the weaker. The third method that God uses is that he has mercy upon some sinners and he advances his plan through them despite their sin. And because of, Moses, because of the intercession of Moses, and a fourth method he uses is that with other sinners, he hardens them so that he can magnify his name. So what Paul is saying is, look at all these methods that God uses to advance his plan for the world. He has mercy upon whom he has mercy. He hardens others, but it's all for the sake of getting the gospel out to everybody. That's awesome. I know we kind of joked about it a little bit before we went live. Um, I think we touched on it a little bit. We poked at the Calvinists, but what are some of the things that, that Arminians get wrong on Romans 9 besides the Jacob and Esau part? Well, that's a great question because I don't really read much Arminian theology. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just trying to probe my brain. I, I don't know. I, I would not know of a whole lot other things that they got wrong, except for that. That would be the big one about uh, Jacob and Esau and, and individual and corporate and just making a big deal that it's corporate only. And then that just sets up something that the Calvinists can knock down. Right. I, I would agree that that's probably the one that every time I've listened to an Arminian that always makes me go, mm, I think you're a little wrong. And what was funny, though, is when you're talking about uh, like circumcision, um, thought this was kind of funny. My friend, uh, did, my, <laughs> when we're talking about circumcision, that they don't, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. Gentiles with the Mosaic law and all that. This was just a funny message I got. And he said, if only Paul could find an example from the Tanakh of a set of twins, physical descendants of Abraham who were hated or loved prior to circumci being circumcised or disobeying <laughs> the Mosaic law. <laughs> That's kind of the point, right? That's the whole point. Okay. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> well, he could find that. Uh, oh, he did. Um, so I have a couple questions from the audience as well. Um, sure. I told them also to keep start putting them in. Um, so 
First off, I'm not even sure if you can answer this question or if we should on air. Um, one person did ask what cities were your friends in Pakistan, but I'm not sure if, uh, he is a friend of the channel, but I'm not sure if you're even able to, able to say because of the issues over there. Um, as Christians. Yeah, it's a tough issue. I, I can go ahead and share this. We have, um, uh, the, the two people we work with, one of them, uh, actually works with the Hindu minority. Um, uh, they're about 2% of Pakistan is Hindu. And uh, that's about 4 million people. So he works with uh, a lot of the tribal, lower caste Hindu people. And so he works all throughout the, the Punjab province and the Sindh province, that's S-I-N-D-H. And, uh, and, then, and then in the lower part of Sindh, there's a desert area called the Thar Desert, T-H-A-R, which is a... Uh, despicable place to live. It's a difficult place to live, but people live there because they want to get away from the Muslims. Um, so uh, he does a lot of work there uh, among them and, and that's where his work primarily is. So, and that's about all I want to say uh, for, for that, uh, where they work. Um, and then also we got uh, Catherine Witherell. Hey, Catherine. Oh, yeah, you know her. Okay. Uh, Dr. Williams, do you know if the storytelling gospel method has been tried in the U.S. or other highly literate Western cultures? And if so, what were the results? There is an organization called, um, I believe it's called Matthew 2414. And they are trying to get uh, the storytelling method to take off here in the United States, and some are seeing some success with that. Uh, so look that up. Um, I guess if you just Google Matthew2414.org or something along those lines. Catherine, I know how to get in touch with you. If you have trouble uh, getting that, then I'll get in touch with you on that. By the way, Catherine is the one who designed the cover of the book, which I think oh. is absolutely beautiful. I really um, like it. Yeah, she did a fantastic job with it and uh, took pains with it. She, she's a mother with, with uh, three or four small kids. And oh, wow. so she's, uh, her husband's a pastor. So she's busy in the church, busy with her husband, busy with the kids. She homeschooled, I believe. And she studies theology. So my goodness, uh, an, an amazing woman. So I, I appreciate her and, and her help with me. So that's awesome. Yeah, the uh, that that's that's getting like the proper art done is always difficult. So that's fantastic. Well, good, yeah. good. Um, We're really gonna ask her for help on your book. <laughs> yeah, I'm over here. Like, also send me your information. <laughs> I might need I, I I might need someone to design a cover for mine. Um, actually, I think I already have a friend that might be able to do it, but we'll we'll find out. Um, send me your information anyway in case it falls through. All right, uh, Dr. Williams, do you think that it's better for churches to start a habit of doing entire book readings of the New Testament letters like Romans in order to engage the story of the Bible better? I'm not sure what uh, Johnny means by doing entire book readings. I think what he means is like... I think what he means, like, okay, uh, I'm going to re go up and as part of the, instead of teaching through this, like, exegetically verse by verse, I'm going to read the entire book, do an entire book reading, like, through the book of Hebrews as the sermon. Um, that's a great question. I don't think it'll work in the West. I, I don't think, people, I don't think people will sit and listen long enough to, uh, 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 to hear the book of Hebrews or to, to hear the book of Romans. So um, 
I, I think a skilled teacher um, will be able to give a good overview of the book, give a good synopsis of it from beginning to end. So, um, and that would be helpful. Yeah, I agree. That, yeah, that is what he meant. Okay. Um, and th yeah, I find that to, I've been in a service before. It was really impressive. A guy memorized all, the entire book of Philippians verbatim in the King James, and that was a servant, sermon. And, and he did it completely by memory. He missed two thes. I remember I counted. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the, the, the reality was, though, it was like, I, li I remember listening to it going, K. But because we are Westerners now, and we are so far removed from that, I'm not sure if it would be beneficial to do that. That's why, like, if I'm going to read, like, maybe chapter 8 of, say, Hebrews, I think I'd give us a working synopsis first of all the thoughts leading up to Hebrews chapter 8, you know, just mm -hmm. trying to at least get weave that narrative, as a because otherwise you have to not just read it, but then you have to unpack the narrative while also unpacking all the cultural connections to what he's getting at in order to understand the narrative that he's drawing. And then you might even have to get really hermeneutical and explain the genre of, and what writing <laughs> tactics they're using. Yeah. It, it can just become, it, it can get awfully weighed down. So that's yeah, why I usually yeah. kind yeah. of just set up the, the lead in as gen generally is what I would and recommend. Yeah, and you need to have somebody who's a good reader who knows how to read and emphasize the correct words. Because most people, they just get up and read in a monotone voice and 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 they're done and 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 people get nothing out of it or very little. Right, exactly. So and it's um in the midrash, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's there's a lot of midrashic discussion there. So uh yeah, may, maybe not Hebrews then. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, Isn't Hebrews that, meant to be read as a sermon though? Yeah, Hebrews was meant to be read all at once, but I mean the, all those people how it's easier like like uh um jonathan was saying here when you're reading romans well the audience then would understand everything that he's doing all the things he's referring to and without having to create you know like how we say on our on our channel all the time i shouldn't have to caveat everything uh you should be able to understand us in context yeah, yeah. yeah well same thing with back then i think when it comes yeah. to writing it's like well Paul didn't caveat literally everything. He assumed that his audience would be able to understand him to yes. some degree or other. Very good point. Uh, so sometimes we, and if we don't want to caveat everything, well, do you think Paul did? Those letters were long enough and he didn't even have a keyboard. So, uh, you know, when we think about like, checker or uh, you can go back and erase and, and say, let me, let me say that differently here. So yeah, you might have got a scribe though. So that sounds nice. <laughs> Could you could you imagine that? But I mean that right. That's what I mean. We think about how detailed he does get in his letters. That's actually quite impressive, considering the fact that it was all pen and parchment, right? Like so, people sometimes we forget the fact of well, why didn't he say that then? Like I'll hear that. That's an argument you'll hear. Well, if he that's what he really meant, why didn't he? I'm like, well, he can't caveat every objection on the planet. Yeah. Um. One. One uh one part uh, Calvinists will say a lot of times about Romans nine. I'd be curious your thoughts. Um, is the part where he says people say they Paul anticipates the objection of like um of saying something to the effect of uh, God shows partiality, right? And uh, well, he he anticipates that and says, "Who are you to answer back to God?" 
what would you say to that part? Uh, let me see. Um, verse 20 you're talking about. Is it verse 20? Yep, it is. Uh, yep, verse 20. Because uh, it says in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to a smolder, why have you made me like this? Is there, um, they, they say that, Calvinists oftentimes say that because as soon as you are saying, well, if you're, if you're, what you're saying is true, then really we don't have free will at all and we can't be held accountable and God just chooses people arbitrarily who you'll save. And then the Calvinist response is always, oh, see, Paul already anticipated your objection. And that's why it says right here, but who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is bold to say to us, Mulder? Why have you made me like this? Do you have? Do you have, uh, have a? Can you take a second just to unpack that thought for a minute as we wrap up? Yeah, they're half right. Paul did anticipate that objection. He most likely came across that all the time, but the objection was was not. And I'm speaking anachronistically here. The objection was not an Arminian arguing with a Calvinist. Uh, and, and that's the fault of Calvinism. And so the, the, the fault of Calvinism is that they have read 5th century, they have imported 5th century and 16th century concepts into the 1st century. That is not what they were talking about. And so what I, what I deal with here is that verse, we have an objection anticipated in verse 14 and another one in verse 19. In 14, Paul explains himself, in 19, Paul reproves the person, which shows me that people who brought that up were probably kind of had a snide, snarky attitude about it. And, and Paul is dealing with that attitude here. Well, if this is the way God is, if he can have mercy upon some sinners to advance his plan, and if he can harden other sinners to advance his plan, and, and well, the, the person would sarcastically say, well, then People who are sinning are advancing the plan of God. So, so how can God judge the world, Paul, if, if, if people are doing this, if God's using their sin? to And, and so Paul is dealing with this snarky, uh, difficult attitude that he came across. And so he rebukes him. But then Paul, ever the optimist, always the optimist, after he rebukes the man, he does go on and he explains himself in, in the rest of the passage here. So it's in chapter... Uh, it's in chapter eight or chapter nine of, uh, of my book where I talk about the difference between verse 14 and verse 19. So he does object. Uh, he does anticipate the objection. He does do that. But the Calvinists don't understand the first century mindset that created that objection that Paul was dealing with. Gotcha. So, um, yeah. so you're so saying that, Rome, that uh, Calvinists shouldn't avoid chapter nine of your book because it's really important. Sorry, uh, <laughs> yeah, they they should um, they should read chapter nine again and again and again. I think if I if I heard your question correctly, and they should get my book and read it. So, <laughs> well, and I guess this would be a good time to start plugging this as we kind of wind down. Now, again, people, sure. if you're in the live chat, start putting in your questions um, about about the book because uh, we're starting to it's starting to wind down. Um, and we I already talked to uh, John, uh, Dr. Williams before this and went, "Hey, I don't want to like give away everything in your book because we want to incentivize you guys to read this." Um, 
I honestly think that reading is one of the best things for people to do. I know podcasting and YouTube is the big thing now, which we are part of. But also, if you're not taking time to read, that's when you can really take time to munch on stuff and really look yeah. at the words being said and consider it and highlight it and double check it. Those are those are it's all an important process. Uh, so um, now. One of the things that we have, we have the link to the book in the description below. You can get it on, uh, you can get it on Amazon, which by the way, it does have all five-star ratings so far, but we would ask that you would use the link that we have in the description below that is directly off Jonathan Williams' website. And that's because more proceeds will go to him directly that way. So if you actually want to support his ministry the most effectively, uh, that's the way to do it. It only takes a few more minutes than to use your little buy now Amazon Prime swipe button, okay? So I mean, uh, there's one tiny correction. Well, the proceeds don't go to me personally. I'm not trying to get rich on this. And I'm so far, I'm not going to get rich on it anyway. But the proceeds go into the ministry that we oh, have. Very and, good. And so we're, we're trying to help these pastors in other places with their storytelling. And that's really what our burden is, what our heart is. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So yes. Uh, so it's not going to you directly. It supports the ministry though, which you guys are all part of. Johnny uh, asked a great question. Besides your own work, uh, who or what do you think? Uh, do you recommend for further reading? Gosh, I just don't know if there's anything out there as good. So uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> uh, to the audience, I'll say that Will and Brian just said that they like to have a lot of fun. So I throw it. Thought I would throw that out. Oh, yeah, we're we li vibing with us just fine. We <laughs> live for this. That's what we live yeah. for is the, it's the, yeah. the low end cheap shots and egotism. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. That's yeah, God will deal with us after after this podcast is over. So um, I, I mentioned that somebody asked a question on the Facebook Soteriology 101 page uh, about resources that I would recommend. And I surprisingly don't recommend books on the Calvinist Arminian debate. I know they're out there. Why I'm a Calvinist, why I'm not a Calvinist, you know, th those kinds of book back and forth. And those are useful and those are good. And you can learn from them, but I recommend books. Uh, the two books by N.T. Wright, the new Testament and the people of God and Jesus and the victory of God, because it puts the history of Israel and the ministry of Jesus within the historical context and within the overarching narrative of scripture. They're not easy books. They're massive. They're large. Uh, get them and work through them and learn the narrative of scripture. That's what I would say. You're muted again. Wally. Absolutely. Yeah, I noticed that too. Uh, so one the one book that I also recommend is always is the New Testament in its world by N.T. Wright and Bird. Um, and that's because, so if you're a person and you're like, dude, I cannot read, you know, 800 yeah. pages into this. Now, granted, you're going to look at New Testament in its world and it is a fat book. In fact, the friend that was messaging me is the one who gifted me my copy. It is a big book. But what's interesting is that each... Um, is what it just goes through every single book of the Bible, a uh, book in the New Testament. It just sets its uh, basically here's the historical context surrounding this book, and here's what you can uh, get gleaned from it. And it just it, he pulls some of the main parts out of it, and then they move on. And it's really nice because you don't have to like you know read that much. So I would add Ed T. Wright and Bird's book. Um, Very good. New Testament in its world. Uh, 
So um, he, okay, he suggested Ed T. Wright. He's a heretic. He belongs here. <laughs> um, no. So, um, and he also had mentioned that you got to have thin, thick skin to be on this channel. And that's true. We do like to I cut up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things I, uh, I had set out for, uh, Brian and I both did when we did this, because I was in pastoral, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. I was in pastoral ministry as a lead pastor when I start, when we started this. And one of the things that we talked about was like, you know, another reason why it's called the church split is because it's sad that Christians can be so so very touchy. Like, you know, you, us talking yeah. about Romans 9 and going, I think people are wrong about it, instantly can make people's hair stand on edge. They get really defensive and angry. And I'm like, no, we should have thicker skin than that. We should have, we should be mature enough to be able to hear an opposing opinion and even introspect and go am i right or am i wrong and if i'm wrong i shouldn't be mad i should say thank you and because you you help bring me to truth and you know there's so many people i look back in my life who corrected me and when they were right and there's been plenty of times where i've sat there and listened to two people argue and then i was like you know what i think i might be wrong i've brian and i are best friends but we will get into it with each other. We will argue a theological point. And I mean, but then in the end, if we go, actually, I think you got a good point there. <laughs> you know, we should have that. So this is part of that, that this idea of relooking at Romans 9 and perhaps considering a new view, or it's not even new, but a view that might be new to you is actually something that's really important. You shouldn't, don't be upset about it. Go into it with that open mind. And even if you're not a Calvinist, uh, perhaps you misunderstand Romans 9 and you can understand it even better. Uh, and maybe you are a Calvinist and maybe you should listen to read this and understand maybe an opposing perspective that might challenge you to understand something deeper. So, sorry, that was a, that, that was a hobby horse topic. Go ahead. Well, and as Dr. Williams had said before, when he was a Calvinist and, and then through discussion with someone who was unrelenting to his your Calvinistic takes on things, it helped you break out of it. And I think one of the things that really is the biggest prevention and why we don't change our mind is because we don't like that we were wrong. So right. it's right. our previous preconceived notions that are holding us back because if we change our mind, that means previous self was wrong. And that's a, that's a little bit of a hit to the ego. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It requires a little bit of humility. Oh, uh, real uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you already talked about that. I was like, wait, what, what got you out of Calvinism? Never mind. I, you, you did mention that. Never mind. Okay. Uh, I was like, oh, wait, we haven't talked about that. You did. Never mind. So um, with that being said, everyone, uh, now, uh, Jonathan, is there something else you'd like to make sure we mention at all um, regarding your book besides obviously pick it up? Is there something that you want to quickly plug here now where that we're nearing the top of the show? Yeah, um, I, I tried to write my book with an ironic spirit. Um, I realize that not everybody agrees with me or will agree with me, but there are larger issues that we have to face, although this is an important one and we need to discuss it because it deals with the character of God and the nature of God. And so, you know, Jesus did not say, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you can cross every T and dot every I theologically. Although we want to do, we want to have correct theology, but he did not say that. And we know what he said. It's if you have love for one another. And so we see in the book of Romans how there were different viewpoints on 
eating meat, eating vegetables, the Sabbath or worshiping on another day. There were, there were differences of, of opinion. And Paul is trying to bring the church together. It might be a surprise to many people that I go to a Calvinist church. Hmm. I, it's a five-point, it's a PCA church. It's a five-point Calvinist church. And I don't go because I'm necessarily trying. I, I don't have any secret agenda to change their opinion. Uh, early on, when I first started going, the lead pastor, who's about 40 years old, something like that, he and I had coffee together. And I told him up front what I believed about this. And he told me what he believed. He said that I was still welcome in the church. And uh, he said, uh, he said, you know, I'll probably teach in Roman science someday. I said, that's fine. I said, you'll probably get an email from me. <laughs> and he laughed. But we're good friends and we love each other. And uh, they, they use me in the church for Bible reading because I'm a really good Bible reader. And um, and in many other ways, they use me in the church. We, My wife and I go because the preaching is outstanding. And he's not up there harping on the five points. He rarely mentions it. Uh, and so we go because there's good preaching, because we love the worship, and because they break bread every Sunday. And we we believe that there's just some, something really powerful about breaking bread together and remembering what Christ has done for us. And so I, I thought about that before this podcast tonight, that I wanted that to kind of be my closing statement, that mm-hmm. yes, we have different opinions, but I, I think this closing statement fits really well. And I appreciate what, what you brothers are trying to do that, yeah, let's talk honestly and let's be secure enough in our relationship with each other that we can talk and even have good, hard talks, but still love each other at the end of the day. Absolutely. And I, I hope that people will pick up on that spirit. And I believe you'll pick up on it in the book that I've written it in that way. Yeah. Usually our last question to somebody in any interview is, hey, we call ourselves the church split, but really we want to unite the divided body. So how Amen. do you think Amen. you can unite the divided body? You just answered it right there uh, that you actually live it out. Uh, Brian and I once we, because Brian and I, we, uh, Brian, I, I, I come from independent fundamental Baptist background with King James onlyism and that whole bit. So <laughs> I, uh, uh, we we'll criticize that once in a while, but like we're, uh, we think they're wrong here. Now I have a lot of IFB friends and pa- friends. A lot of my f- uh, friends are pastors in the IFB. Then I also, but Brian also being raised a Calvinist, we also will criticize uh, and critique Calvinism. And we've had people before like message in and go, well. <laughs> Would you let a, you know, you don't like Calvinism, but would you let a Calvinist on your church board? Yeah, you probably wouldn't. And Brian and I were like, yeah, we, we literally have one with us on our board. <laughs> like, cause we were, I, I was the lead pastor. Brian was, a, was an elder. And then we had this other guy that uh, as an elder and he is one of the best people I've ever known. Like, I love that guy. And I mm-hmm. won't say his name. I don't want to drag him onto the show, but uh, he, man, well, he's a good man, person. So yeah, on absolutely. My, on my ministry board, a good friend of mine, and he's on the ministry board. He's a five-point Calvinist. He's on See? my ministry board. So there we go. Yeah. So and you can do that, and that's and that shows mature. I think that's true maturity. Um, honestly, it's it's, it's, it I, it, it's like we can disagree as long. I mean, we're, we still hold the Nicene Creed. We believe Christ rose from the yes. dead. That he's he is one one with God and true God. I think we can. 
if we can hold on to that, then we can have a perfectly good conversation. And I think um, it, this sort of literature that you provided is actually extremely important to keep dialogue going amongst yeah, Christians yeah. Right. and show that we can do so maturely. So I really appreciate your heart and your spirit. One of the things I appreciate the most so far about, uh, at this interview as we wrap up, and Brian, I'm sure uh, this will echo in your sentiments as well. But the thing is, is that it's not just about, oh my goodness, this is my book and this is how great and smart I am. Um, yeah, It's actually like, this is the gospel, why I love the gospel. And this book is another way to view and see the gospel in Paul's writings. And that's really my heart, right? I wanna see souls come to Christ. And I think Amen. that you have that heart. You clearly work in missions. You uh, pastored for 35 years. You don't do that to get rich. Uh, you <laughs> there's uh, <laughs> These are things that this is actually something that you live it out and I appreciate that. So Brian, do you have any... Uh, do you have any closing thoughts here for us? Yeah, I would before... just say, you know, Will and I were hanging out last week, and one of the things we are talking about is just uh, we really want to see more pastors that are theologians, pastors that can actually write a book about theology, can actually do exegesis, can actually talk to the issues that are affecting the church doctrinally. And I think we have a lot of complacent pastors that we see that are, they're just preaching to what they were told, and they do a nice three-point sermon every Sunday and go home and call it good. And I think there's a lot more depth that I think people are craving for. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see so much of a boom in the Christian podcast realm is, is people aren't getting it sometimes at church. Sounds like you're getting it at your church and that's awesome. And yeah. uh, just applaud you for being a pastor who's thinking critically about these things and willing to put it on pages of a book that people can buy. With your yeah. name on it, which means that what I was telling Brian, uh, what I the reason why I keep pushing my book out more. I keep working on it more. It's because I'm like, once it's published, it's got my name on it, then it can be criticized. And I'm <laughs> like, and I want to make sure I have it as airtight as possible to present my case before, you know, that happens. So, I mean, to do that, it, it, it's, it's, I get it. Or maybe, you know, that's a weird nerve thing that you didn't have that I just have. I don't know, but, uh, it was definitely, it's definitely a thing that haunts me, but, uh, all right. Well guys, um, everyone watching, uh, and everyone who's going to watch after this stream, just know this, uh, you should definitely order this book. I think it's definitely worth your time. I think, uh, there is going to be a lot of great little nuggets and it's okay if you disagree with parts of it. I always tell people, eat the meat spit out the bones you know you don't have to you don't have to agree with everything but you could at least uh, pick it up and when you pick it up you support this ministry and as we can tell here that there's many people being blessed by the gospel of jesus christ through the work of people um through people like wgs ministry so we want to keep supporting that and we vote with our dollars so just go ahead and do it that way and also you get a great book if when you do it so uh with that being said if you guys want um like and subscribe to the channel go check out the book link is in the description below and uh join us on patreon brian hit the ad <laughs> i'm on it <laughs>And guys, if you want to avoid seeing obnoxious ads like this, we gotta be strong, we gotta be healthy. When you wanna feel nice and strong and satisfied, you gotta check out Good Ranchers. Right now, go to goodranchers.com, use promo code Knowles. Or that. We also wanna thank Free Life Soap, because I don't know about y'all, yes. but I got a new shipment of soap yes, in. Yes, I did. Here yes, sir. And it was great. Or this. Hi guys, my name is Will, and I'm here to tell you why you should be a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Or that. To get to that momentarily first, I want to talk to you about Daily Wire's most trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of this show, ExpressVPN. Are you aware? 
Your browsing data is constantly being tracked and monitored. Please support us on Patreon. We do not want to annoy you filthy heretics with any sort of ads on this show. So when you're a Patreon subscriber, you also get access to our apologetics classes and other video contents a whole month. You can support us on Patreon for as low as $1 a month.